glory. Sometimes I just get overwhelmed with the goodness and the grace of God. Do you? When you love great harmony and you hear a great truth sung like that, I'll tell you, that'll get you about as close to heaven as you're going to get here till you get there. You'll want to be back tonight for this great concert. If you love harmony and you love great music, thank you, fellas. That was just uh, awesome in the heart. Awesome in the heart, wasn't it? Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 9, if you will, please. We continue with our series of messages on why believe. Why should we believe? And today we want to take up the subject, how can I really know God? Now the focus of this message is to explain the dynamics of a salvation experience and to demonstrate both to the body and to the world that the experience of knowing Christ, of receiving Christ, is more than just a psychological phenomenon. Now, as a Christian, I already start with the assertion and the assumption that you can know God. I believe anybody who will turn to the Father when the Spirit speaks will come to know God. But I add another dimension to the question, not just can I, but how can I? And how can I be certain that my experience of receiving Christ is not just the euphoria that I feel when I make the cheerleaders team or when I miss the last cut of the basketball team? Or how can I make certain that this is an objectively true experience? If you read the Winston-Salem Journal very carefully, you've been following the evolution and creationism debate in the letters to the editor. A man wrote recently about uh, the comparison of creationism and evolution, and uh, he made the statement, of course, that you can't prove anything that is religious. And then he went on to imply that if you are religious, it's because you're very weak or dependent, and some people need that, he said. (laughs) And so that's a leap of faith. And uh, evolution is not a leap of faith. It's a hypothesis that has been proven over and over and over and over again, so therefore it's true. Uh, He's probably wrong on both counts, but at least I know he's wrong on Christianity. Because the bottom line for believers regarding the experience of faith is that there was a Jesus Christ in history who went to a cross, and if you'd been there, you would have gotten splinters in your fingers. There was a tomb... And that tomb had Jesus' body planted in it, but he was resurrected out of that tomb, and that's a historical, verifiable fact that has changed history. And there have been hypotheses about that resurrected Christ, which have been proven millions and millions and millions and millions of times. What is it? That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart. What is it you must believe? In padded pews? What is it you must believe? We need television preachers? No. That God has raised him, where? From the dead. 
See how that's tied? Every salvation experience is tied to an historically verifiable truth. Jesus Christ is alive, came out of the grave, and he is alive today. Well, here are the questions that this addresses. Isn't it possible, some people say, that the salvation experience is just psychological? I mean, you get all hyped up. Does Christianity really provide a more meaningful life? I mean, can't I get the same results by turning to, to another religion, of any religion, as long as I believe it? The world says it's all right. How will being a Christian change my life? Is there any difference in the way Christianity changes my life and the way Confucius would change it? I mean, as long as I've got a code, as long as I've got teachings to follow, isn't that going to be all right? One of the most fascinating things I've ever read. In 1957, Bertrand Russell, an English philosopher, wrote a book entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. And it is one of the most insightful things into the mind of a, a pre-modernist that uh, I've ever read. And uh, in that, uh, I, I looked for that for a long time. Uh, in fact, one time I thought about having a bunch of atheists come and give their testimony here publicly as to why they're not Christians. I really did. This, this, this is one of my strategies about six, seven years ago. And uh, we got to thinking about it and praying. I, I think it'd be neat, don't you? How many think that'd be neat? I'd just like to hear why, why they're atheists. I thought that'd be good. And then uh, take from the scripture why. But somebody said, no, if you have them do that before a public crowd, it will make it difficult for them to ever be saved because they'll think they've staked out their position and now they can't back up and deny their atheism. So we kind of backed away from that. But I still think that's a neat idea. So I just read the book. And if you think it's a neat idea, go read the book. Bertrand Russell said... A Christian is one who believes in God and immortality and has some belief about Jesus Christ. That's his definition of a Christian. These beliefs are accepted as an emotion, on emotion, not argumentation. These beliefs Christians that Christians have cause unnatural feelings. You want to restrain your sexual tendencies when you have these natural sexual drives. Seems like every newspaper I pick up, somebody didn't restrain their natural sexual drives and is in trouble these days. But anyway, this is Bertrand Russell. He said, uh, uh, Christian beliefs inflict suffering, oppose progress in the world, capitalize on fear, and lead to cruelty by enabling weak and sick people. That's his answer to why he is not a Christian. And I want to tell you, folks, if it weren't for Christianity, I don't know where this holding up some kind of standard of righteousness, this world would probably already have destroyed itself. But in any event, some say Christianity then is for three kinds of people. The weak and dependent, those who have exceptional needs and are in a crisis, and they turn to God, and those who have wish fulfillment. They want something to be right so bad, they think it so often, they make it psychologically happen to them. Now, that really is where a lot of our world is. 
If you're a Christian, you're weak and dependent. Or you went through a great crisis and you got hoodwinked while you're in the crisis, Robbie. That's, that's what it is. Or you were just kind of sappy-headed and you wanted something so bad you thought you got it and you named it Christian. <laughs> that's it right there. Now, I'll agree to you that, with you that there are false forms of Christianity. I think there's a superficial believism. And all of us know people like that, don't we? They name the name of Christ, but there's no evidence. Sometimes people think a Christian is one who simply uh, does not adhere to any other religion. If you're not a Buddhist, you're a Christian. If you're not a Hindu, you're a Christian. If you're not a Muslim, you're a Christian. See? Then there are those who are, think they're Christian because they were raised in a Christian culture. I mean, it's my background. That's all I know. My parents chose for me. And then there are those who believe that a Christian is one who lives a socially accepted moral life. Well, he gets along all right, and it's accepted by the majority of society. Therefore, he's a Christian. How can we know an experience with God is real? The same way you know your marriage is real when two witnesses sign. The same way you know that a contract is valid when a notary public signs it. There's verification by witnesses, and there is historical reason for believing what you believe. Now, in the book of Acts, there are two great events that change the whole book. One is Pentecost. That's when the disciples were changed. And the other is the conversion of the Apostle Paul. And from that point on, the rest of the book of Acts just about tells you uh, what, what the works of Paul, Saul of Tarsus are. And I want us to look at that conversion experience, which is recorded three times, by the way, in the book of, of Acts. And I want us to look for signs about Paul's conversion that will help us to understand that our experience is real, and this is the way you have a genuine experience with God. Are you ready? The first thing in chapter 9 is that uh, we have an objective sign of crisis. An objective sign of crisis. Objective in that it can be verified. Verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, the way of Christ, one of the names for Christians in those days, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. When he crossed those mountains, Damascus lies in a gorgeous green emerald valley on the edge of a desert. And as he came near Damascus, probably coming down that mountain, suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Kyrios? Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Paul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? <laughs> and the Lord said, Arise, go into the city, you'll be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, 
hearing a voice, hearing sound, but seeing no one. And Saul arose from the ground. And when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, all conversion begins with some method by which God speaks to us. Nobody comes to Christ unless the Holy Spirit draws him. And sometimes God will use a sickness and sometimes he'll use an accident. And sometimes he'll use a mistake or a sin or a great concept of shame or guilt. But God will always use an event in order to draw men to himself, if you look far enough. Now, in Paul's, uh, Saul's case, he is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He's pursuing Christian fugitives from Jerusalem. He's heard that some of them have fled to Damascus. He gets a court order from the Sanhedrin. He goes up to lead them back as prisoners to Jerusalem. And the funny thing is, Paul is led into Damascus. He can't even see. Now, there are four striking things to arrest Paul's attention that God used. One is a light. One is a voice. The third is the idea, is the message, the idea that he was persecuting. And the, the last is Jesus told him he was persecuting him. Jesus, you're, why are you persecuting me? And those four things struck Paul in such a way he could not recover immediately. The Roman authorities had given the Jewish authorities the authority to put people in jail if they were heretics. And Paul was acting upon that authority. Now, first, there's the light shone around him from heaven. Now, I read one man who said there are violent storms around Damascus, and it was a bolt of lightning that hit him. <laughs> it was a bolt of lightning that hit him. Well, there's plenty of chance for those who were with him to explain that. Don't you think so? I mean, if that's what it was. The Bible says they, the men in verse 7 who journeyed with him, stood speechless. They observed the whole thing. That's why we know this is an objective intervention into his life. You know, thank God you didn't find Jesus. He found you. Why do we go around and say, you know, I found Christ. You didn't find Jesus. It implies you were looking for him. The truth is, Jesus is the shepherd seeking the lost one. The truth is, Jesus is the woman who lost the coin in John 15. The truth is, Jesus is the father looking for his son to come home in the prodigal son story. Oh, no, don't make the mistake of thinking that you were searching, and in your search for something, you suddenly found Jesus. I want to tell you, Jesus found you by divine intervention in your life in some way. It was a light. I don't think it was lightning, because I think that the, the companions of Paul, who were not Christians, they were compadres of Paul. They would have made it known, wouldn't they? They'd have said, hey, you guys got it all wrong. And nothing religious happened to him. It was a bolt of lightning. The second thing that happened was a voice, and they heard the voice. That's why I say an objective sign of crisis, meaning somebody outside Paul's mind saw it and heard it and could say, yeah, that's what happened. 
See, if you come to me and say, I've got green ears growing out the top of my head, I'm going to say, how'd you get that? Well, I ate some purple mushrooms. And I'm going to say, well, did anybody watch you eat those pers- uh, purple mushrooms? Did anybody see those green ears spread out of the top of your head? If you can't verify it with a witness under Moses' law, two were required, then it's not objectively true. It's something you thought in your mind. One day, two girls came from uh, the apartments across the street. And one said, I've seen, they both taken LSD. One said, I, I saw God and he's a big red blob. He was a giant red blob. And the other one said, I saw God and he was a great big purple dinosaur. Well, there's nothing objectively true about that experience that they could prove by any witnesses. Nobody got inside their minds. But Paul's companions saw the light and Paul's companions heard the voice. They knew God had done something. Now, don't, don't get upset. If you read the account in chapter 22, it says they didn't hear. What it means is they didn't hear the words. There are two different words. One's phone and, and the other is a, a word for language. But the third thing that happened was when he said, uh, who are you, Lord? When he fell to the ground, verse 4, he said, why are you persecuting me? You know, I'm convinced that was a strange thing to Paul. Paul thought he was doing God a favor. That's why I don't think this just could have been wish fulfillment, psychological phenomenon, because it was exactly opposite of what he had on his mind. He had gone to kill those Christians. He hadn't gone there to be nice to them. And when Jesus said, you're persecuting me, Paul, his thinking must have gone bananas. He's saying, persecuting you? I'm doing you a favor, God. He tells us later, I thought I was doing God a favor, killing off the Christians, protecting Judaism, protecting the role of the Pharisees. Oh, no, he said, you're persecuting me. I'm doing God harm? I think Paul could not re... I don't think he could react to that. I don't think he could recover from that. That just blew his mind. God said, you are doing me harm. And Paul thought he was doing God good. And then the fourth thing was, he said, why are you persecuting me? I'm not doing anything to you, God. I'm doing it to these Christians. And there, Jesus gave him a hint that when you persecute a Christian, you persecute him. When you harm a believer, you harm him. And he speaks of the union between these people Paul was killing and Christ. And Paul was just knocked off his intellectual feet by that idea that we are in such union with Christ that when I do a favor for Jonathan, I do it to Jesus and for Jesus, which is why the Bible says, inasmuch as ye have done it unto the one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it to whom? To me. Why are you persecuting me? The light, the voice, the persecution, the idea of me. I, I, it could not have been psychological. Just could not have been psychological. It was objectively verified. And I've often wondered if any of those other men with Paul were saved that day or what happened to them. Do you ever, do you ever read the Bible and wonder, well, I'd like to know the rest of the story. 
I wish I knew the rest of the story. I wish I knew how many of those men were converted at the same time Paul was. He was absolutely astonished at the accusation. Well, now, let me put the test to it. Was Paul weak? He had, he had the authority of the Sanhedrin in his hand. He didn't need some psychological experience in order to boost himself. Did he have a lot of needs? Well, Paul had the expenses paid. He came from a pretty well-to-do family. He came from a pretty well-to-do city, I doubt it. Wish fulfillment? His wish was to destroy all Christians. And yet that's what some people say happens to you when you're saved. You just have a psychological experience. You'll get over that. Well, I hope I never get over mine. Amen. <laughs> Can you really know God? Of course. I read one writer who said, oh, it was all psych psychological. He was feeling such pain from Stephen's death. He was just filled with shame and guilt and remorse. And that's why he was so very, very violent and angry with Christians. You believe that? I'll tell you what. If I believed that, I would have read it when Paul explained his testimony in Galatians. He said, I was a blasphemer and I was a killer. That's what he said when he explained his own conversion. Psychological, I believe it was objectively verifiable. Somebody else saw it. And, uh, and he had an experience with a living, risen Christ. Back when uh, Dr. Jeremiah was here last year, at one of his sessions, he told about a psychological hotline offering help for a variety of psychological ailments. Uh, he, and, you know, you call in and they give you all these messages, punch these numbers. I know some of you folks hate that when you call the church number after hours. If you want to pastor for an emergency, dial one. If you want to pastor for prayer, dial two. If you want to pastor for counseling, dial three. If you want to give an offering, dial four. If you need to sneeze, dial five. If you need... You ever get tired of all those things? Sometimes I, come on, come on, come on, get through with that guy. Let's go, let's go. I know you must get, <laughs> you must get impatient with us, but we're doing the best we know how to do. But anyway, this psychological hotline had a, had a menu. And here's the menu. If you're calling about an obsessive compulsive disorder, press one repeatedly. <laughs> if you are codependent, Ask someone else to press two for you. <laughs> if you are multiple personality disorder, press three, four, five, six, and ten. <laughs> if you are schizophrenic, a small voice will tell you what number to press. <laughs> if you are paranoid, you don't have to press anything because we already know who you are and all about you. <laughs> And if you're a manic depressive, it doesn't matter what number you press because no one will be there to help you anyway. <laughs> and if you have an attention deficit disorder, we can't help you because you probably already hung up. <laughs> now, there are legitimate psychological ailments, you know. But the charge that Christianity is just a psychological phenomenon is one that won't wash under the test of one of the greatest men of all human time. The second thing that we see in our text then, as we move on, is that there's not only an objective sign of crisis, but an obvious sense of conviction. An obvious sense of conviction. Look in verse 7. The men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. 
And Saul arose from the ground, and his eyes were open, and he was blind. And they led him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight and without food or meat and without any drink. He went through an obvious time of conviction. When Paul later discusses his conversion, it doesn't tell us about his guilt or his shame. His life was under rebuke. When you say that a Christian is a person who has a psychological experience at conversion because of his great needs, I'm going to say God uses needs, doesn't he? And God uses crisis in our lives to draw us to himself. I remember one time I was preaching a revival in a distant city and I'd had penicillin for strep throat five times within the previous two years and I got another strep infection. And the doctor came in and said to me, have you been taking your penicillin? I said, yes. He said, how many days did they give it to you? Ten days. He gave me penicillin for 50 days. And I have never had any throat infection since then. And that was 31 years ago. <laughs> but you know, I'm, I just, I hate penicillin. If it hadn't been for penicillin, uh, I, I, I would still have my strep throat. How dumb to blame the Christ who saves us in a time of need and to blame that experience on the need. I'm not going to blame the infection on the penicillin. I'm not going to blame the solution of my problem for the problem <laughs> because all of us have problems and that's what some people say. Paul, it wasn't real conviction. It was just an inner psychological thing with him. Oh, really? His life was under rebuke because he was attacking the body of Christ. In the high priestly prayer, Jesus said, I, will, I pray that the Father will not take mine out of the world, but that he will keep them from evil in the world. And Christ was doing whatever he had to do in order to preserve his body in the world. By the way, that thrills me because he's still doing that. I'm in his charge. I'm in his care. You're in his care. This church is in his care. The devil can do whatever he wants to to attack, but we belong to Christ. And I'm in his hand. And I'm in his care. And when his church was being challenged, Jesus intervened in his life. Now, in Jewish thought, to hear a small voice from heaven, under the Greek's idea, would mean that there was a, a minor God speaking to you. Uh, others would think that if you heard a voice from heaven... It, it was probably a psychological disturbance, but that's not what the Hebrews themselves thought. When they had a voice from heaven, in the prophetic tradition, it was always a rebuke or a word of instruction from God. They took it precisely that way because God revealed himself that way to them. It was a word of instruction or rebuke. And Paul needed time to process that. There is a state of conviction, you know. Sometimes we wonder why people aren't saved the first time they hear the gospel. Paul went through three days and three nights of conviction. He couldn't eat or drink. Any of you remember your state of conviction? You were miserable? You were under conviction? David, do you remember? You were under conviction? You knew there was something you needed to do? You knew your life wasn't right? You knew you needed Christ. I think we, we, 
we make a great mistake when we forget that God most often lets us go through a state, a time, a period of processing what God is doing. That's what the Holy Spirit does to convince us of our sin. In fact, I've, I've come to believe that where there is the process of conviction going on, that when the decision is made, there's something about that initial commitment that is deeper and richer and fuller because of the processing of the guilt for sin. Paul, I think, during those three days and three nights, processed all of his past, his life and activities. He thought about the people he'd been responsible for killing. He thought about the times he'd blasphemed. I, I think he, he thought about what he thought of Jesus. Jesus was an imposter. And now for three days and nights, he doesn't drink anything, eat anything, and Jesus has spoken to him. What do I do with this? Have you ever been confronted with something that was exactly opposite of what you believed and you just couldn't accept it right off? Well, I just can't believe that. I've got to think about that. <laughs> sure you have. That's what God was doing in Paul's life. Reminds us of the need as a body, we ought to be praying for the lost. We ought to be praying more for the lost. We pray for the sick. We pray for those in trouble. We pray for the grieving as if somehow God made a mistake in taking somebody to heaven. <laughs> hey, that's where I'm going. Don't weep for me. I want to go there. I'm not anxious to hurry the process up, but I'm ready to go. Amen? <laughs> Why should... If we prayed as hard to get people into heaven as we try to pray to keep the sick out of heaven, we'd have some results around here. We need to pray for lost people. We need to hold names before God so that God will have our intercessory prayer and our agreement in prayer is a basis for working in their lives and divinely intervening. I've often wondered in reading this, how many people were praying for Paul? How many Christians, how many bands of believers in Damascus, in Jerusalem, in Antioch were praying that God would do something about this threat on their existence by the name of Paul? Take care of him, God. And God did. <laughs> it was an obvious sense of conviction. Well, not only was there an objective sign of crisis and an obvious sense of conviction, but there was an obedient source of counsel, an obedient source of counsel. Verse 10, there was a certain disciple at Damascus by the name of Ananias. Do you know what that name means? That means the Lord is gracious. Ananias, the Lord is gracious. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias... Now we have not only one vision, we got another vision. How many visions now, class? We got two. How many witnesses under Moses' law were required to establish the truthfulness of a matter? Well, if God spoke from heaven to Paul and God spoke from heaven to Ananias, now you've got confirmation, haven't you? You've got two witnesses. Legally, on any marriage license, you've got two witnesses who guarantee that this marriage is going to work. And stand good for it. Amen? All they're saying is, I was there, I saw it. And it, they took their vows. And there are two, two voices, two revelations from heaven to confirm that this is real. 
And Ananias said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said, Arise and go to the street called Straight. That was one of the main streets down Damascus. That'd be like somebody in New York saying, Go to Fifth Avenue. Everybody knew the street called Straight. By the way, it's still there. It's still there. The street called Straight. They even know the house, they think, where Ananias was and Paul was. But, but he said, here I am, Lord, and the Lord arise. Go to the street called Straight. Inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, what is he doing? What was Saul doing during his three days and three nights without food or drink? Praying. God, have I been wrong? God, have I been mistaken? God, have I killed these people wrongly? Lord, have I blasphemed you? Lord, am I kicking against what you're doing? Am I not cooperating with you? He was praying three days, three nights. The redeeming element, the one redeeming element of Phariseeism was that it taught the people to pray. Every time God spoke, they prayed. And Paul spent that three days and three nights in prayer, I believe. Now, Ananias hesitated. He said, Lord, verse 13, I have heard from many about this man. How much harm has he done to your saints in Jerusalem? I mean, that'd be like the Lord directing you to go to the biggest cocaine dealer with 10 bodyguards around him. And uh, tell him about Jesus. <laughs> Lord, me? Not, not me, God. You want me to go? Yeah, I want you to go. Where is he? Well, he's over there on Main Street. Uh, uh, me? Yeah, you. You, Ananias, go. And I said, oh, no, Lord. Here he has authority, verse 14, from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And the Lord said, go, for he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, was Ananias experience psychological? Do you think that something as radical as Paul, the persecutor of the Jews, being a vessel of the gospel to the Gentiles, would have been wish fulfillment on Ananias' part? <laughs> Ananias went his way, entered the house, laid his hands. Look what he called him. Brother Saul, that blows my mind. <laughs> Brother Saul, he called him brother. From the beginning, I don't know what God is doing, but Saul, God spoke to me and told me to come to you, and he calls him Brother Saul. Ananias wasn't from Jerusalem. He was a Damascus Christian. But he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you, how did he know? How did he know? God told him. Now you've got further verification. God told Ananias, Paul, I spoke to him on the road to Damascus, confirming this obedient source of counsel is confirming Paul's experience. And has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. When he had received food, I don't think they had a barbecue spare ribs, but he, they had some good food. He was strengthened. And Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Brother Saul, and he laid hands. It's not logical. One reason I believe the Bible is it's so realistic. It doesn't always just fit in a neat little, neat little category. 
the fact that he told Saul that he was going to be a, a missionary to the Gentiles, that's not logical. That's illogical. The same Lord spoke to both of them, confirming the same experience. It's the same experience. I'm wondering if that isn't why people are saved with the aid of a human witness or a human instrument. Because the presence of another person to pray with a person gives objective verification of the experience. I mean, in the previous chapter, God moved Philip from a revival before the love offering could be taken and said, get thou on the road to Gaza and I want you to lead the Ethiopian eunuch. There's an Ethiopian eunuch who's seeking me. Why did the eunuch have to have somebody to help him? When he got up in the chair, he said, do you understand what you're reading? And you remember what the eunuch said? How can I accept what? Do you remember? Some man should guide me. Ananias guides Saul, Philip guides the eunuch, and God wants to use you. God always chooses to use a human, some way a human instrument was involved in your salvation. I'm telling you, it never happens any other way. Somebody prayed for you, somebody printed a Bible for you, somebody gave you a tract, somebody prayed with you to receive Christ, somebody was witnessing to you, somebody was building a friendship with you, somebody was building a relationship with you. We're not saved without God using somebody. And I think one reason God does that is so that our experience can be verifiable. A woman called me one night on the telephone and said, I, I need to tell you that I know I'm Jesus Christ. And I said, well, this, has God told anybody else? She said, well, that's the thing. Nobody else believes me. I said, well, that poses a problem, doesn't it? But here is our Christianity. Our Christian experience is based upon an historical truth about Christ, an historical truth about the resurrection that is verifiable in history. And over and over and over again, the hypothesis of conversion has been stated and shown and demonstrated and demonstrated and demonstrated. Let me close quickly. The last thing here is an observable set of changes. You have an objective sign of crisis the obvious sense of conviction, an obedient source of counsel, and an observable set of changes. Verse 18, scales fell, he received his sight, he arose, and was publicly identified with a group that he was just persecuting, took food, was strengthened, and verse 20, immediately preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Such a radical change. Such a radical change. Ananias had been God's instrument. And now the changes fall down. That's the way you can know that you can know that you can know that you are saved. There's objective evidence from somebody else. There are changes in your life. There's the historical truth of the gospel. And you can know that you know that you know. <laughs> now the changes are tied to the facts. The fact is, there's a revelation of God's purposes. A report of Paul's actions made a difference in history. And here is objective evidence in both Saul's life and Ananias that Christ really was raised from the dead since not only did Stephen see him, but now Paul has heard him 
and seen him. And now Ananias has heard him. Jesus works. Now, if I say faith works, that may not be true because it, I could be mistaken. The test of, of just practicality or pragmatism is not really a valid test. However, a faith that is adequately supported by truth and historical facts, a faith in someone that is tied to history and can be verifiable and is true to life and is observable in others, that kind of faith works. And it's a valid experience and cannot be assailed. It's an unassailable experience of billions and billions of Christians. So we always ask ourselves, was this experience shared by an observer? Was it accompanied by a sense of wrong, conviction? Is it aided by someone else? Does it fit the historical facts and promises of God's word? God promised if you believe and confess you shall be saved. Then you can know that you know that you know. Amen. Uh, we, we've watched an interesting thing around our church. And I, I love this man. He's, he's a good man. He's been on our support staff for a long time. He's the one who makes it possible for this place to be cool every Sunday. And his name is Gary Bartley. Gary kind of sailed along telling everybody he was a Christian, he was a believer. And about six to eight weeks ago, just out of the clear blue, God divinely intervened in his life and laid on his heart that he'd never really been saved. And, and, and he put his confidence in Christ. And I want to tell you, if I never believed in Christian conversion by looking at your life or my life, after watching Gary these last six weeks, there is absolutely, positively, certifiedly, unambiguously, unassailably, no question left that salvation is real. And every staff member has watched it. There is a change in who he is, in his spirit, in his personality. It's just, it, I, I can't even describe it. It's just something, that, he's got a smile on his face he never had before. He's been through a lot of pressure. He's been through a lot of tough times. But there's a smile on his face, and, and, and God divinely intervened, and you can see the observable changes in his life. It's incredible. I dare you take off a day of work and just follow him around this building for a day. And he's in this service. Gary, stand up back there so everybody can see who you are. That's the man. <laughs> and everything I've said is true, isn't it? You can even ask his wife after the service. And she'll tell you, she is married to a different man because salvation is real. God is real. You can be assured of your salvation. I don't care what the world says. It's been proven over and over. It's been tested over and over and over and over and over. It's been tested more times than evolution ever was. And you get the same result. Now, they're different personalities, but the same basic set of results. Now, I want to ask you, are you sure that you're saved? And do you know that you know that Jesus is your Savior? Is somebody around watching the changes in your life? Was somebody around when you were saved?
Are you resting on the historical facts of the resurrection? Has there been a time when you passed from death into life? You knew you were a sinner and you said, Father, I believe, just like the gentleman sang about this morning, Christ went to the cross for me. I should have been on that cross. It should have been my nails, my hands, my side, but he went for me. And at that moment, I'm going to tell you, there is a spiritual miracle that takes place. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. I believe if there were not a heaven, I would still believe in the salvation of Christ because of the changes and the transformation he brings in people's lives. But you have all that in heaven too. Let's stand in prayer. Would you bow your head for a moment? I wonder how many of you would say, Pastor, I have every confidence and assurance that I'm a child of God. Nobody looking around. Slip your hand up into the air. Say, no doubt in my mind. Put it up. And praise God as you put your hand up. Praise God for your salvation. Amen? Thank you. Put it down. How many would say, first up in the balcony, Pastor, I'm not absolutely certain I'm saved. I, I can't identify some of the things. Now, you don't have to have a bright light from heaven, but God used something and someone in your life. Slip your hand up and say, I'm just not absolutely sure that I'm saved. Would you slip your hand up in the air? Say, pray for me up in the balcony. Just put it up quickly. Down here on the lower floor, would you just put it up quickly, quietly, and say, I'm not absolutely certain. Yes, yes. How many others over here on this side? To my left, your right. Slip your hand up. Father, work in us what is pleasing to you until we have what we sing about, a blessed assurance so that we'll be boldly going out into the world proclaiming that the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.